Father, we thank you that grace is victorious. Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And that becomes the theme for the book of Romans as we start in a place of the whole world guilty, Jew and Gentile both sinners before your throne. And yet you send your son to be the savior of sinners and grace wins. Cause our hearts this day to trust you, to turn from our own trusts, to leave our own pleasures and sins that we may find in you the greatest pleasure of all. Speak to hearts today as only you can do, blessed Spirit of God. Open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your law, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. If you ever go to the spring training home of the Detroit Tigers during the month of March, just before the game begins, the announcer will say, back home in Detroit today, it is a frigid 30 degrees and snowing. But here in beautiful Lakeland, it is a wonderful 75 degrees and sunny. Aren't you glad you're in Florida? And the crowd of largely Michiganders cheers. <laughs> but I've always wondered, does that announcer say something in the middle of the summer? I doubt that he says in the month of August when the Detroit minor league team, the Flying Tigers, is playing in that same stadium in Lakeland, Florida. Does he say, back home in Detroit today, it is a gorgeous 75 degrees and sunny. But here in Lakeland, Lakeland it's a scorching 98 degrees with 100% humidity. Don't you wish you were somewhere else? And as I thought about that, you know, when we control the field of comparison, we always make ourselves look better than others. It is common to emphasize our strengths in comparison to someone else's weakness. Our best, their worst, and we have feelings of superiority. You can always find someone who looks bad to make you feel good. And that's exactly what's happening in the book of Romans, in the early chapters, where the Apostle Paul is talking about the whole world sinful before God in the first three chapters. In chapter one, he introduced himself and the purpose for writing the book. He's going to talk about the gospel of grace that comes from God, received by faith, and offered to Jew and Gentile alike. What a wonderful gospel. Good news about Christ. But the good news is good news because of the bad news. And about halfway through chapter 1, Paul begins to talk about the, uh, the vicious and wicked immorality of the Gentiles. Although they knew God, they wouldn't glorify him as God, neither were they thankful for God. They became foolish and darkened in their heart and gave themselves over to all kinds of sin, immorality and social sins that break down any community. 
And I'm sure every Jew in Rome who got the message, uh, the letter of the book of Romans from Paul, was saying, amen, way to go, Paul, way to give it to them, but not so fast. When we come to chapter two, Paul turns the searchlight of God's word on his own people, the Jews. We're in Romans chapter two. Let me just remind you of some of the ground we've covered. Paul said in verse one of chapter two, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself because you, pass, you who pass judgment do the very same things. God's judgment is based on truth. Human judgment is flawed. And again, compares with others to make ourselves look rather good. And God says, you're committing the same sins as the people you judge. The Jews will say, well, wait a minute, God hasn't brought judgment upon us. Well, that's verse 4. Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not realizing that the kindness of God is intended to lead you to repentance? God hasn't judged you yet because he's patient. Don't misinterpret his kindness. Verse five, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, judgment hasn't come yet, but you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. And he says in verse 9 and 10 to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For, chapter 2, verse 11, God does not show favoritism. Amen. He is not impartial. He is no respecter of persons. Your status, your accomplishments, your power in this world means nothing to him. And he goes from verse 12 through verse 16, basically proving that point. God does not show favoritism. Let me just read it quickly. All who sin apart from the law, Gentiles, will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law, Jews, will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when the Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they're a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. So God is no respecter of persons. And in verse 16, a day is coming. He mentioned it in verse 5. The day when God judges, the day of God's wrath, when the secrets of people's hearts, not just what you've seen outwardly, but what has happened inwardly, will be brought to light. And Jesus Christ is the judge. Aren't you glad that the judge is your savior? What a difference that makes. He's always already declared us righteous. And the gospel declares that part of the good news is this awesome bad news 
of God's judgment upon sin. First time the Mosaic Law is mentioned in the book of Romans is here in this section from verse 12 and on, and Paul mentions it over and over and over again. It is interesting that the same argument that Paul uses at the beginning of Romans, you who pass judgment on others are doing the same thing, he brings up again in verse 17. But now his argument is not so much as a moral reasoning as much as it is a, an examination of the law itself. I find it interesting that what Paul begins to do in verse 17 is to give something of a self-portrait of the Jew. This is what the Jews would say of themselves. Paul is not being sarcastic here. He's listing some of their great privileges. In fact, you might call these points of Jewish pride in verse 17. Notice the if you, if you, if you repetition. Now, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law, and if you boast in God, let me just say that the, the name Jew is a name of honor all the way back from the second century BC when the Maccabeans stood up against the polytheism of the day and proclaimed that there's one true God. The Jew was a name of honor and righteousness, and they call themselves a Jew. And they rely on the law, verse 17. They possess the law. The Torah was sacred in Judaism, and no other nation was given the law. That's a great privilege. And they boasted in God, which can be very positive. Let your boast not be in your own works. Let your boast not be in your own attainments, but in the Lord. I will only boast in the cross of Christ. That kind of boasting is good. But their boasting had a bit of a twist to it in the sense that we are God's favorites. <laughs> and because he's given us all of these things, he won't judge us. We have an exemption from judgment. We're in the clear. We have the law. We know his will, verse 18. If you know his will, literally the will, to which all other wills are subservient, if you know the will, and because of that, you are able to approve or discern what is superior, a phrase that is repeated in uh, the book of Philippians, and it means to discern between the essential and the non-essential, the primary issue or secondary issues. And their knowledge of the law gave them that ability to be wise and discerning. In fact, verse 18, they were instructed by the law. The Greek word is where we get the English word catechism. They had been taught formal religious education from the holy law of God, and they knew the scriptures. And all of these were great privileges, but they became points of pride, which can happen in Bible-believing churches to people who say, I know God, I'm his child, and I have his word. I'm one of his favorites. I've been adopted. I call him Abba. 
And on and on we could go with many of the blessings that God has given to us, but if not responded to properly, the privileges can produce pride. And the pride leads to presumption that all is well. To go on, Paul says, being instructed, you instruct. Being taught, you want to teach. So verse 19, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those in the dark, an instructor of the foolish and a teacher of infants, little children, because you have the law, the embodiment of the truth. And again, these were true of the Jews. By the way, these words blind, dark, foolish, little children are names that the Jews gave to the Gentiles, the proselytes, who didn't have what they had and didn't know what they knew. Remember one time Jesus said in Matthew 15, leave them alone, they're blind leaders of the blind, referring to the Pharisees. Now Paul turns the table on them. And after talking about these points of pride, he offers up some rhetorical questions of concern, pointed questions. Verse 21. Let's compare your profession to your practice. If you then teach others, do you not teach yourself? You preach against stealing, do you steal? You say that people should not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who hate, abhor idols, do you rob temples? Let's stop for a moment and do a little explaining what Paul is doing here. He's actually attacking some of the common sins of the religious leaders of the day. They're teaching others, but they're not growing and learning themselves in grace. They talk about stealing. It's a sin, but they steal. It's very interesting that they said the Jewish leaders would say that... Uh, Robbing, stealing is a sin, but if you find some Gentile's property that was lost, it's okay to keep it and not tell them. That's a little bit of a different angle, isn't it? But in essence, it's taking something that doesn't belong to you, especially when you know the one who owns it. Stealing. Josephus even writes about a situation uh, that was uh, decades before the Apostle Paul actually uh, wrote to the book of Romans. There were four members of a Jewish community who had been working with a Roman who had become a proselyte following the Jewish religion. His name was Fulvia. And he was asked to make a generous gift toward the temple in Jerusalem, which he did. And then these four members of the Jewish community took that money and ran. Josephus said that was the straw that broke the camel's back so that the Roman emperor, Tiberius, expelled all the Jews from the city of Rome in AD 19. Josephus, a Jewish historian, a Roman historian who was actually a Jew, 
paid by the Romans to write their history, so you always wonder if he's giving you the, the accurate line. But it was common for religious leaders to steal. How about this one? You who say you shouldn't commit adultery, do you? I don't know how common it was in that day, but it's pretty common for religious leaders. I shouldn't say common. It happens, doesn't it? In our day, for those who are religious leaders to preach against it, yet to practice it on the side. And you who hate, abhor idols. <laughs> they justified going into a heathen pagan temple and taking everything in it because it was not worship to the true God, but the things they took, they kept for themselves. Things of value, maybe the gold and the silver. They were robbing the temples that they hated. You see how... The human mind has the ability to rationalize our sin, and when we judge ourselves with others, we're not as bad as those wicked Romans. But when you look at the law of God, you say, wait a minute, I'm not measuring up. And the law of God, which gives us a righteous picture of God himself and his holy attributes, cannot save us because we cannot keep it. But what it can do is show us we need saving. And that's what Paul is trying to bring up here. Their problem was not in overestimating their importance as much as it was failing to live up to their importance. Even Jesus said, be careful to do what they say, but don't do what they do because they don't practice what they preach. Matthew 23. You have the truth. But does the truth have you? That's a good question for us. We have the truth. But does the truth have you? God, when he gives favor to a people, creates responsibility. To whom much is given, what's the rest of it? Much is required. That was true of the Jew. And they didn't live up to their responsibility and true of us as well. But there is a charge even worse than hypocrisy. Verse 23, you who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Notice they boasted in the law but they were breaking the law and by doing so caused people, the Gentiles, to blaspheme the God of the law. This is a quotation from Isaiah 52. When the people of God were taken into captivity, the name of God was mocked because the people of God were enslaved. And when we succumb to immorality and hypocrisy on such an open level that the world can see, they mock our God as being non-existent or not powerful enough to help us. They discredit the holy name. Remember when David sinned with Bathsheba, it was the prophet who said to him, you have given the enemies of God great occasion to blaspheme. You, David, 
the man whose heart was after God, the man to whom I gave the kingdom and blessed in many battles. You have given the enemies of God great occasion to blaspheme. In our world, blasphemes the holy name of God because the lives and behavior of those who call him Lord. Ouch. I thought you were going to talk about the Jews today. I was going to settle back in the pew, have a nice Sunday morning. And now you're turning this on me? (laughs) The searchlight of God's word is turned on all of us. It's interesting that the Gentiles began to assume that God must be hypocritical or weak, like the Jews that they had seen around them. The sacred name that the Jews would not even pronounce because it was so holy is a name that was being blasphemed because of their open sin. Robert Haldane, a commentator in the book of Romans said this, God is dishonored by the transgression of his people in a manner in which he is not dishonored by the same transgressions in the lives of wicked people who make make no profession that they belong to him. That's the self-portrait of the Jews. But we go on even further. Not only are there these points of pride and then these rhetorical questions that reveal that they've broken the law, but then there is this sense of value in circumcision itself. This is the third point of the self-portrait of the Jews. Because now talking about the law itself and having the law, which was a privilege but gave them pride, maybe the greatest point of the law that they were grabbing onto for their own confidence and security was this idea called circumcision. They believed that they were saved by it. One commentator said, Circumcision was the passport to salvation for every Jew. If you had it, you were on your way in. It's kind of like nationality. If you're a citizen of the country, you get in. It doesn't make any difference whether you live up to the ideals of citizenship. You just have your passport. The Midrash Talim says this. Rabbis said, God swore to Abraham that no one who was circumcised would ever be sent to hell. And in another place, it describes Abraham as sitting at the gates of hell and saving every circumcised Jew before he went in because he had the badge of belonging to God. Now, the law is good and holy. Circumcision is good. It was given by God as the sign of the covenant back in Genesis 17. But it was the sign of something far greater It was the emblem of a deep personal relationship. It's kind of like a wedding ring. A wedding ring is a great thing, but it's only the symbol, right? Of something far deeper, a covenant. And what is a wedding ring on the finger of an adulterer? And what is circumcision? in the life of one who constantly breaks 
the law. Circumcision is no substitute for obedience. In fact, circumcision commits you to obedience, much like our baptism. Our baptism is a sign and seal that we've been brought to faith in Christ. It's important, it's good, but it doesn't save you. And if all you have is baptism or church membership, it's not enough. It's a privilege on the outside, but it doesn't show a change on the inside. You know, I, I don't, I think it's fine for people to wear crosses as jewelry around their neck or have a tattoo of a cross or, you know, make it prominent in their life. It does seem a bit strange when you understand that the cross itself is a symbol of horrible persecution, but we display it as a, as a connection to the sacrifice of Christ. So that's not bad. But if that's all you have is a cross in a church where the gospel is not preached, you have nothing. We have a cross. And if your life is not Christian, but you wear a cross, you have nothing. I think it's fun to ask people who are wearing a cross, oh, that, boy, that's a beautiful piece of jewelry. What does a cross mean to you? Well, I didn't even know I was wearing it. It just looks good. And then tell them about the cross. Tell them what it means and the fact that they're wearing it. Look at verse 26. So then if you are not circumcised, if, so then if you who are not circumcised keep the law, the law's requirements. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as if they were circumcised? I think I skipped over verse 25. Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you've become as though you've not been circumcised. And those who are not circumcised but keep the law's requirements, will it not be? regarded as though they were circumcised? Circumcision minus obedience equals uncircumcision. And uncircumcision plus obedience equals circumcision. That's what he's saying. The presence of circumcision is not an automatic guarantee that you are right with God and in his divine favor. Neither is the absence of it a sign of divine prejudice. Because it, it goes deeper than that. Verse 27, the one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you even though you have the written code and even though you have circumcision, but you are a lawbreaker. Wow, the roles have been reversed. The Jews were passing judgment on the Gentiles at the beginning of the chapter, and now the Gentiles who obey the law are passing judgment on the Jews who don't. So many people in our country believe that they are properly related to God, or at least in the end will find his favor because they've been born in America, a Christian nation. At least that used to be the view. <laughs> it's not so much anymore. But maybe they've been born into a Christian family or they attended a Christian church and all of that 
gives them confidence that one day God will accept them. It is a grave mistake to exalt these signs of knowing God for the reality of knowing God. So this self-portrait of the Jew actually could be a self-portrait of any Christian. And now Paul goes from the self-portrait of the Jews and how they view themselves and their relationship to God to the divine portrait of the Jew. This is verse 28. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor a circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is the circumcision of the heart by the Spirit and not by the written code. So there's really four points that are being made in these verses uh, about the contrast between a true Jew and a false Jew. Here's the divine portrait. It is inward, not outward. The reality is in the heart, not in outward rites or ceremonies. It is in the heart, not in the flesh. That is, circumcision was a fleshly operation. But the whole purpose was to show that the heart had been circumcised as well. Listen to Deuteronomy 30, all the way back to Moses. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you might love him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and live. Jeremiah 4.4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts. This is Old Testament. And yet they were satisfied with the outward instead of the inward, the fleshly instead of the genuine. Notice that circumcision of the heart is produced by the spirit, not by the law. It's the work of God. It's not the work of man. It's by the spirit. And then finally, it's approved by God, not by human beings. Verse 29, the last part of it, such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Which is probably a play on words, because the word Jew comes from the word Judah, which means praise. And although they were Jews, they weren't praising God's name, they were blaspheming his name and encouraging others to do the same, when the one who truly receives praise from God is the one whose heart has been circumcised. Outward things are important, but they flow from the inward reality. If all you have is the outside, you have nothing on the inside. You and I will watch a Hollywood movie and be impressed by the location, but if we were there, we would not be so impressed because many of those buildings are facades. And you walk around the front, which looks so wonderful, in the back, there's nothing there. And some people's lives have all the trappings of a Christian. But if we were to look inside, as God does, there's nothing there. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart, on the inside. 
Jeremiah 17, 10, the Lord searches the heart and examines the mind to reward each person according to their deeds. Luke 16, Jesus said, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people highly value is detestable to him. And Paul's simply trying to make the point that you Jews with all of your privilege are filled with pride that has brought you to a place of presumption. You think all is well, but what about your heart? Is it right with God? That's the thing that counts today. Is it dark by sin or does Christ dwell within? Could you ask him in today? People often see you just as you are outside. Jesus really knows you. For he sees inside an old gospel hymn. How about your heart? Is it right with God? That's the thing that counts today. And so Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, what I'm speaking about with a circumcision of the heart is all about Christ. Colossians chapter 2 verse 11. In Christ... You were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. What is circumcision? It's a heart that opens itself to Jesus and says, I'm a sinner and I need saving. And Jesus comes in and makes you a new creature. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I'll come in. And Jesus comes in to renovate and to recreate and to circumcise, to cut away the old and create anew by the Spirit of God, a new person in Christ where Jesus will feel at home. When I read Romans chapter 2, I always have to remind myself that once we get to chapter 3, there's real hope. Because Jesus died to change us in our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, I don't know the hearts of the people before me, but you do. And it's not how they appear, it's how they are. It's not the outward performance or the outward appearance. It's the inward reality. Look on their hearts right now, God, and speak truth to them. And hope. For the Lord Jesus Christ will circumcise the uncircumcised heart in a moment when one would turn from their sin and trust him. And when we do, there is love and joy and forgiveness and 
and peace and a life dedicated to living for you. Hear our prayers. Save our souls. In Jesus' name, amen.